Hello, friends, Pilates intrigued, and folks who just like listening to us talk about stuff. Welcome to the Thinking Pilates Podcast, where we're having rich conversations about the Pilates mindset, how people move and are moved, the way we think about one another and play together, how we form relationships, and a whole lot of other humany things. I'm Chantel Lopez, creator of Said Shenanigans, knowledge seeker and assimilator, listener, storyteller, mover, and movement educator. I'm joined by my friend and delightful co-host, James Crater, who you'll be hearing from in just a bit. The Thinking Pilates podcast is definitely a passion project created around ideas that inspire, provoke, encourage, and sometimes, yes, even challenge our beliefs around what Pilates is and how it fits into our lives. If you're a Pilates lover or someone who only knows it as the ab workout at your local gym, we hope you'll stick around and explore some conversations with us as we hopefully help to expand the definition of Pilates. If you're loving what you're hearing, we appreciate your feedback, shares on social media, and the ever-important review on iTunes. And yes, you can now find us on Spotify, so all of your commuting and listening needs are totally covered. After the show, we'll give you some more details about how to connect with both of us and a little bit more about what we're up to individually. A bit of a warning. As much as we like playground movement, we love adult vocabulary. We hope you won't mind and that you enjoy all the other words in between too much to care. And now, on with the show. It's a very exciting time here at Thinking Pilates Podcast as the show grows by leaps and bounds, supported by the energy of you, our audience, your sharing of the episodes, your reviews on iTunes, and the conversations that you're having about the conversations we're having. We couldn't be more thrilled that they're sparking insight and inspiration. As the season goes on, we'll be presenting several sponsors to support the show. And today we'd like to tell you a little bit about the science and psychology of teaching master's program, a program that will take you into a whole new universe of teaching in this five month online program, culminating in a fantastic live event in Sonoma County, wine country in California. You'll dive into critical areas of teaching never before directly addressed in a full length certification program. Areas like brain science and education, humanistic psychology, motivational science, the polyvagal theory, and so much more. The master's program was created by myself and my colleague, Ann Bishop of Body Brain Connect, out of a deep desire to fill a huge gap we saw in our professional community, both to support teachers in elevating their professional output by engaging in an exciting project of their choosing and offering them an opportunity to become great teachers, not just good technicians. The program begins February 2019. Right now we have a series of Q&A calls that you can jump on to learn more about the program and get all of your questions asked, or you can book a one-on-one consultation with us through the website pilatesmastersprogram.com. If you're really ready for something more and something deeper and richer, 
to elevate your career and catapult you into the next stage, we hope that you will take an opportunity to check out the website and get in touch with us. Again, the website, PilatesMastersProgram.com. And now we are thrilled to introduce to you one of the most dynamic and impactful teachers we have ever had the opportunity of getting to know, Heather Von Southerd. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Thinking Pilates podcast. Uh, Very excited to be here on this particular episode because I get to talk with an old friend and I get to talk with a relatively new friend. So, Chantel Lopez, how are you doing tonight? Howdy, sir. I'm good. I'm good. I just finished shoving my face with food, so I am really good now. Yeah, it's it's that self-sustaining thing. I was telling Heather before we, we chimed on here that I needed to just close my eyes for like 15 minutes to feel yeah. like I could show up tonight. Yeah, and I just needed food. I realized on the way home from the studio that I had coffee, tea, a handful of apricots, some yogurt, and that's it all day. <laughs> so now I feel freaking fantastic because I had some some real food. But anyway, <laughs> and then our new friend is Heather Von Southern. Hi, Heather. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm really excited to be speaking with you tonight. So excited. So we're even. I feel like we've been circulating in like the same uh, friend sphere for a while. You're like a relatively new friend to me, and and I just I love you in the short amount of time we've gotten to spend together. So I'm super excited to introduce you to our audience. Ah, uh, thank you. It's mutual. <laughs> good, good. It's a love fest. It's a love fest everywhere. Yeah, it always is. <laughs> <laughs> So our theme for this season at Thinking Pilates is curiosity, Um, and I thought we'd kind of let that be our jumping off point. So Mm -hmm. because I know you're such a prodigious reader slash nerd, like the two of us, Heather, (laughs) what are you you reading right now? Uh, Well, Brene Brown's new book about leadership has just come out, so I am into that, um, Dare to Lead. Uh, I'm also reading some Antonio Damasio, which I take in small bits and pieces, so I I space that out and savor it. Um, So I'm still in that. And then I'm revisiting some older works um, that I've read multiple times. Um, I've recently pulled out Hiking the Horizontal uh, by Liz Lerman, um, who's an internationally renowned choreographer and brilliant thinker and movement educator. and some uh, dance therapy-related work uh, by Daria Halperin, so the expressive body in uh, life, art, mm. and therapy. Mm. So what is the, the one that really struck out to me or stuck out to me there was the hiking the horizontal. What, tell me, mm-hmm. I, just because I'm curious, what is that? Oh, it's brilliant. Um, so the book itself is field notes from a choreographer, and so within this um, she's covering a, you know, a, a smattering of, what her experiences have been like within the creative process and then bringing the creative process to dance communities and to communities of movers who don't have a dance background. Um, And in this, you know, there's also some TED Talks or not TED Talks, but uh, some YouTube videos of her discussing this. In, In this particular book, she talks about 
basically systems of value. And, mm-hmm. you know, when she's creating dance for dance sake, some folks would say, what's, you know, why are you doing the community-based work? Because your company, before she'd left um, to pursue other endeavors, is so prolific and is so um, high in its standard and, and quality. Why are you wasting time working with community? And mm-hmm. then there's, you know, so that's the vertical axis. And then there's the horizontal axis where other people are saying, you know, the work that you're doing with general population is so profound and you are giving voice to bodies who wouldn't otherwise have access to this. Why are you still in this elitist realm of dance for dance sake? And so within this, um, you know, there's that, that paradox of where does the value live and how do you create the harmony um, within your career and within your, uh, you know, life. And for me, some of her questions that she asks have been guiding principles for how I've moved in my own career and also within the movement communities that I've shifted through from dance into Pilates into um, movement-based mindfulness and other things. And, and so those questions would include who gets to dance, what is mm. the dance about, where is it happening, and why does it matter? Mm. Um, and when I came across those, you know, I was I had heard them before, but when I was teaching in public schools, working with at-risk kids, giving them as much of a solid and integrity-filled dance experience that could allow them to a path in movement and in dance if they wanted that, but also knowing that for the majority of them, this was just a means for them to experience themselves in mm-hmm. a movement-based way that would help them function with other people and function in school, that that, for me, really started to address some social justice um, themes and, you know, what is the movement about, what what kind of expression is allowed, and who gets to explore it, um, where in the body does the movement, where is that allowed to exist, and where in the community does that exist, and then what does it all matter, um, and ultimately mm-hmm. it came, it brought me to a place where it's, it has been about developing a life, a quality of life, but it's also really about developing a life of quality. Mm-hmm. So. I feel like we could just literally dive off the deep end yeah. with <laughs> with that. Like <laughs> there it is. That's that's yeah. the conversation. Um, but I think in order in order to go there, let's because. A majority of our audience will know who you are, and then there's going to be a portion of our audience like, that's brilliant. Who are you, Heather? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> sure. so, yeah. let's build a little context. Where, yeah. like, uh, who are, what is it that you do, Heather? Uh, I know, well, right? <laughs> it's, right. It's, it, well, I, I suppose it depends on, um, okay, so what I do is I connect people with themselves, I help them connect with other people and with bigger ideas. And all of that is done through movement um, and creative process, which may or may not necessarily be art making. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I've started to refer to this work as movement design because I work tangibly in various fields. I work mm-hmm. in education and I work in arts education and assessment. I work in Pilates. I work in somatic movement education. Um, 
I work in uh, professional learning, so developing training for a wide variety of people, classroom teachers, movement educators, anybody who has to teach anyone anything. Um, I consult with people who are uh, looking for team building and usually don't know what they're <laughs> what they've asked me to do until we start doing it, um, mm -hmm. where we're really making connections about what real life is and our vulnerabilities and how we all have them. Um, and then we just explore that through movement in a way that helps them build a sense of community a across their team and, and helps them get into better and more efficient critical discussion. Um, mm -hmm. So, it's, it's, you know, how I answer that usually sort of depends on who is in front of me. Because mm -hmm. I can spin that through the K-12 lens or through the arts education lens or through the movement lens, and I, I end up wearing a lot of hats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did you end up there? Like, certainly you weren't like a five-year-old, like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, how did when yeah. you look back on it, um, you know, because that's a, it's um, – it's a, uh, since we are primarily a Pilates-based podcast, that's, that's the mm -hmm. listener base, um, mm -hmm. I think a, a conversation that has been coming up more and more is like, what, what does it mean to be a Pilates instructor and what else can I do with this education? And mm -hmm. if I burn out of teaching the teaser, what mm -hmm. else? What like rather than throwing all of this experience away, what else can I do with it? And when I think about that conversation, I like you're the name that comes up. Mm. Well, right. So the, the five-year-old me did have a plan, like, oh, I dance and I move. This is what I'm going to do. And I set mm -hmm. out on that trajectory, um, wanting a career in dance, and and had that. I had a professional career in dancing in Chicago and New York and Los Angeles, and I'm based in Michigan, so throughout Michigan. Uh, but, you know, I really, to be perfectly honest, I've had a lot of trauma in my life, as we all mm -hmm. have to varying degrees and and how we define that. Um, and I moved through life, went through undergrad, went through professional dance, was in New York during 9-11, mm -hmm. um, met my husband who, you know, although we're both originally from Michigan, I was in New York and he was in Los Angeles. And so I moved to LA, started a dance company there with a good friend and then decided grad school because I knew, I had always thought that I wanted to be in higher education because I thought that's where the mm -hmm. interesting questions were. And mm -hmm. that also I could pursue all of my interests, movement-based, intellectual. Um, I could have a family you know, that would be the complete package. And when I was in grad school, I started to think more specifically about movement as um, as, a, as a revealing component and also as a healing component of how trauma exists for people mm -hmm. and whether they hold it, they acknowledge it, they move it, like what happens with that. And I was curious about it for my own, you know, experience, but more and more curious about the experiences of others. So when I was in grad school, I started research in how movement alleviates physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and while I was doing research, I was thinking, so what will also make me marketable <laughs> mm -hmm. for higher yeah. ed? And 
Trent McIntyre um, was a good friend of mine from undergrad, and I knew that he had established his own teaching certification and was really forward-thinking in how Pilates functions as a teaching experience, as a movement experience, and how it intersects multiple layers of life. So I chose his uh, mat training. It was His training at that point was different than how it's structured now. Um, and so I started to use Pilates as a lens for empowerment and organization of the body while also using creative process as a means for um, accessing and, and uh, impacting the nervous system. And, you know, once we stir all of this stuff up, what do we do with it? Mm -hmm. uh, so whereas now I really thought, you know, thoughtfully and strategically invite people to move through creative process as a means to um, create something with what they've experienced, not even necessarily that they are consciously thinking about events that's sort of moved through, but we've got this energy, what are we going to do with it? Um, mm -hmm. And then I found my, and while that, we, I also was researching some communication patterns because my program required that I made two research-based dances. So one was a solo and one was a group piece. And I had analyzed the the novels of the Bronte sisters um, and then made a dance about their writing styles. And when I finished that program, I was interviewing for university jobs and fell into a position teaching in a public school in an urban setting in Michigan. Um, mm -hmm. And it was real, I, like, I probably wouldn't have applied for the job, but the uh, a friend of mine had started as a guidance counselor and then said, this program has been around for 35 years. They hired someone. He's backed out. School starts in two weeks. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. So I took the job, okay. and little did I know, all of this research, which I thought was interesting and would make me marketable and would lead to other avenues of research, became my practic my practical life. My my classroom became the laboratory for helping people function, and it was all through the lens of dance. Um, mm -hmm. until dance started to get, that label started to get in the way of the work that I really wanted to keep doing, and that was addressing where is your movement uh, holding you back, and where is it revealing the places that you need to go, and how can I help facilitate that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, so that's sort of the, mm -hmm. the pivoting role of Pilates. Um, and, you know, I found that to be, for me, the most effective tool in helping people get a sense of their empowerment in their bodies and a sense of organization in a functional way that was grounding so that we could, I could also take them into unexpected places with movement that they don't usually do in, a, in standard life. Um, and kids are freer and easier to access some of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when it was, you know, and when it was still guys under dance, it was very highly technical and I was still doing that, but I was playing with all of these different lenses. How do I get them technically strong, um, but also, you know, collaboratively strong and communicatively strong and, uh, you know, so how do we do that? And ultimately I arrive at, at the arts are our humanity as is science. So when we unite those things, really powerful things happen. And when we do it in community with other people, then transformation really happens. Mm -hmm. So it's been an ongoing love affair of chasing these questions. Um, 
which from the outside has meant that my career has looked probably very strange to some people um, because it's, you know, it's been through K-12, it's been through dance, it's been through arts assessment. So how do we know what kids know? How do teachers Mm -hmm. demonstrate that they are doing what they are tasked with doing and that students are actually growing? And how do we do it in a way that's integrity-filled and maintains the best parts of our disciplines, which for dance is movement? Um, And then I've translated that work into the work that I do in the Pilates realm um, and guiding teachers through a process called the spiral. Um, And so it's, you know, it's been weaving and nonlinear and it feels as though it's been deepening and broadening all at the same time. Mm. Mm-hmm. I so get that. And it doesn't, it's interesting to hear you uh, was, you know, kind of digging around on your website, Heather, and, and have been, you know, curious myself um, more and more about you in order to prepare for the interview. But, you know, mm-hmm. we've been circling around each other too for a while and as I've been, you know, been reading some of your stuff, and it's interesting because it feels so, to me, looking from the outside, feels like perfect, right? Mm. Perfect and rich and, yes, a little chaotic, but, but also, you know, it's like I was working with a student this morning who has advanced MS, and she's in a lot of pain, and and we're, we're, we're doing movement, obviously, because she's sitting until her body is, you know, just following that, that kind of limiting um, progression. But beyond that, I was talking to her about, like, listening, like, just beginning to listen again to the body through the pain, like, despite the pain, and, and following it, and, and keep following it, and, and notice, like, even if it feels weird, or strange, or unfamiliar, or you're not exactly what your body is telling you, like, just keep following it. Like, if you're going to make a, a weird sound, like, let yourself make a weird sound. If you want to move your pinky finger, you know, get curious about your pinky finger. And to me, it feels like um, that's what you're doing, right? You're listening and listening and following. And so, it, to me, it feels so perfect. Um, and when I read what you, uh, you know, what you do and how you talk about your work, um, there is a fullness uh, in the experience of reading about it, even though, and I think we're a culture, as you know, you were alluding to this before, like how do you how do you follow the curiosity but also make yourself marketable? And I think we're in a time in the world where that feels so um, critical in order to create li- to create livelihood, and it also, at least to me, feels like a heavy burden because I know what I do. I love what I do. I'm not confused about what I do, but but then there is the other side of how what how what language do I use and how can yeah. I be specific? And what you know, James and I and many others have kind of been in this conversation about like what is your work? And I simultaneously feel really burdened by having to answer that question, but also but also liberated because when when you let go for me when i let go of like the the expectations i have or that i think others have on me in terms of what will make me marketable i can i can drill down and i can get clear 
but there is also this little hang up about like, are those the right words? Are those the things that are going to appeal to, you know, the people who are going to pay me money? And so right. it's an interesting conundrum really. Um, and, and challenging, I think for those of us who are really following um, our paths more um, intuitively, I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but um, mm-hmm. to keep, I love what you said about broadening and deepening because I have that exact experience and it is sometimes very disconcerting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> especially yeah. when I have to equate it to like how, how is this going to create a, a more sustainable livelihood progressively over time? Because of course that's, you know, I mean like that's important. Yeah. yeah. I think what I have found and what I struggle with, so it's, it's the blessing and the curse, right? Like they're always intertwined. Um, in all of the intersecting facets of my work, so, you know, I'm in state policy conversations about arts education with our, you know, state department of ed. Um, and I'm at conferences about large-scale assessment, which I never imagined myself ever to be in, but I'm there. And then there's the movement piece, um, which is, you know, Arts specific, and then there's the movement piece, which is really um, open to all bodies and where my heart sort of lives. Um, what I actually find is that I'm having it is actually all the same work, and it's all you know the same conversation, it's just through a different lens and with perhaps a different set of language layered on top of it. Um, And that has been freeing because it has allowed money to flow in from multiple pathways. Mm -hmm. Um, Where I can struggle is that I feel sometimes, oh, I should be doing that. Or I notice this, you know, we always get comparative. And even when I try not to, um, you know, like, oh, is that what that is supposed to look like? <laughs> and, or is that, you know, how do I, how do I push those in the right proportions can be a place where when you've got a portfolio career, um, that can be a place to dwell and can be a source of frustration, but can also be a source of liberation when you let that just settle. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I find is, you know, I have, I look for where the opportunities are. So when I'm at a national conference about large-scale assessment, which means, you know, like your your state assessments, um, you know, the standardized tests that people don't want to take and, you know, um, I'm there and I'm asking people to move with me and to breathe with me. And that doesn't happen in the other sessions at that conference. And I realize I'm supposed to be here doing this because – Otherwise, they might never have this experience. And then I get to talk about the experience that kids have in schools when we access the arts in what other classroom in the building is going to ask that student to focus on their breath mm-hmm. and to use it as a communicative tool and then in a way inside themselves and beyond themselves simultaneously. And then, 
you know, and then I get to get people moving in a modest way and have all kinds of other interesting, curious conversations that are not about directly about assessment and certainly not about big standardized tests, which is not what I'm there presenting on anyway. Um, but I find that I need to relax into where the opportunities are coming and that, you know, Jack, I think it's Jack Cornfield will, will sometimes say, um, you know, you know you're on the right path because it's the path that you're on. <laughs> and Parker Palmer will say, listen to what your life is telling you and yes. then make a choice. Um, yeah. And I try to do those things. I don't, you know, don't always do them well, but but and it I, is a place where I can ebb and flow my energy and money can come in a variety of pathways. Mm. And I still get to do the same work. Hey, James, do you feel like... Yeah. Peter shares a brain with the two of us. <laughs> I, told you, I told you when I met Heather, I was like, I literally just met the female version of myself who lives across the U.S. from me. Like, I don't, I don't know how it happened or what. Right. Like, I don't get it. But yeah, I mean. Well, I had, yeah. I had been reading you in social media and so forth, and then I had reached out to Trent. And said, um, so James Crater, <laughs> I feel like we might be the same person. And he was like, oh, yeah, he's great. I'll connect the two of you. And then I felt like I, that was a little stalkerish. But, um, you know, I really feel like I imagine what his work looks like I think is pretty similar to mine. But we've it sounds like we've arrived here at really different ways. And then we had the opportunity to meet. And um, and James led the first session at Trent's. Uh, conference, summer conference, the summit, and I co-led the last, um, and it, and I felt, oh well, yep, there it is. <laughs> yeah. But there's a, there's yeah. so much similar and complementary and contrasting and interesting ways that it feels like, uh, yeah, it's just, and that's really has has been validating because for a long time I have felt on the fringe, and yeah. an island thinking. I don't know very many other people that think the way that I do in this way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well, it, it's, it's uh, having conversations like this with people doing work like, like you're doing and Chantel's doing and I'm doing and there's, mm -hmm. and there's other people. Um, it's, it is validating. It's confirming because I'm, I'm not a dancer and I don't mm -hmm. have a graduate degree. I came about my work from, you know, very from a very different lineage of experience, but landed and circulating around like mere image yeah. teaching. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's very 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 similar, mm -hmm. and uh, so when that happens, it's like okay, there's there's some in the purest sense of the word truth going on mm -hmm. here yeah. with this work because it's coming from different different sides of the country, different experiences, mm -hmm. different sexes, and mm -hmm. it's circulating around the same concept of, of how am I working with the person through movement yeah. and how am yeah. I addressing the experience via a, a kinetic vessel yeah. Um, and and where is that where is that taking me as a teacher and where is that taking them as a person and where is that taking our relationship 
together, mm-hmm. which is a very different thing, in my opinion, than let me teach you an exercise and, exactly. le- and let me give you and let me give you this movement as a gift to do with it, whatever you want to do with it. And instead, it's like, well, what's what is actually going on here with you, with me, with us, with with everything going on? Um, and it's just such a, uh, a fuck yes moment when you see yeah. other people doing that and you're like, yes, 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 because otherwise it does feel isolating. Right. And, you know, I, I felt like the, the wheels fell off my bus in the best possible way when I was teaching in, in public school and I have really limited class sessions with these kids and I realize why am I – why am I structuring my experience for these kids the way that I am? I don't have to teach the way that it's always been taught. In fact, I can, I can, I can shift from teaching the legacy and teaching the, the tradition of whatever movement mm-hmm. um, method and actually teach the people. So I'm, I'm doing both, but, but, they, but there's a very different intent um, mm-hmm. And I think there's a different sense of loyalty within mm-hmm. that philosophy. And I identified that with you. And also, Chantel, when I, when I stumbled across your work, and I was really looking for who's teaching about teaching, mm-hmm. because I think there's so many training programs. And in dance, we would say, you know, people that give class, mm-hmm. or they, you know, that you're trained to move through a sequence of events, and that's valuable, and you need to know that. And also you need to know all of the reasons why you would change those sequence of events um, or be willing to explore them. You don't even have to know. The point is the exploration. And so I was so um, similarly struck, Chantel, by your work and the fact that the way that you are really um, inviting people to ask the right questions. And I know you wrote that about that recently, but that has been the way that I've thought of you for so long. yeah. Great. So, you know, so very much about, you know, what's the depth and the and the the truth. And I also feel as though it, you know, we don't really need to come at it from high highly credentialed places. Mm-hmm. You know, I went for the high credentials because I thought that's where the great questions lived and I thought that that was where I would find the other people that wanted to have those interesting conversations. And I actually found it to be relatively inverted I can have those those conversations there and when I was teaching in university systems and I still do um, like you know we can go there but I found that when I was in a room with kids who have no filters and you know exactly where you stand with them (laughs) and where and you feel where they stand with you and they're in it's real there's no going back from that there is no going back from that. So when you find yourself in these teaching environments where you can actually touch the truth and then your task becomes how do you hold the space for it to be a continued experience and how does that become the climate and culture of your of your room and of your studio and of your business and so forth, you know, that to me is where the exciting pieces live. And for me, it was dismantling also who were the biggest thinkers in my field. You know, I loved teaching about Merce Cunningham when I first introduced his work, um, you know, kids, I had to rethink how I introduced it because if I just showed his dances, people, some people would really be interested and some would, would really not be interested. It was very avant-garde 
Yeah. Um, he was partners He's, with John Cage. By the way, my favorite choreographer. So. Okay, right. <laughs> so when I would teach his work, I would start with, uh, you know, I would start with an interview of Bill T. Jones talking about why Merce's work was important. And then we would maybe read some descriptions about Merce's work so the kids would imagine what it might look like. And then we might look at some photographs. And then um, we would hear an interview of Merce talk about his own work, and then they would finally start to see it. And so they were creating all these connections about why it might be important and what, what the point of it was. And, uh, and I was teaching them technique, but they weren't necessarily realizing really firmly because they're kids, oh, we're doing Cunningham technique. They just thought it was, you know, dance class to some extent. And then we're also, you know, as we always did, we were deep diving into historical and iconic works and not in a chronological way. Um, but I, you know, when I get to his work and I think, yeah, so what's the point of being passive or active? And how do you get to put somebody in the role of making a choice of what you see, what you hear, where your eyes go, how you interact with yourself in the seat as an audience member. Like what's the, what's the responsibility and it, and where can I ask them to take responsibility? And that really shifted my teaching. It's not Mm -hmm. me gifting it to you. It's me guiding you and you really have the responsibility to take this Mm -hmm. um, or not take it. But Mm -hmm. then we need to reevaluate if we should be working together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just, yes, yes, yes. This is all these conversations that James and I are are always having. And I find, I hear myself having, I hear James having, he hears me having. It's, it's it's amazing. You know, we just interviewed um, Frank Ferencic and let's see how I, see how I nailed the last name there. Yeah, you did it. You did a really good job. (laughs) (laughs) Yesterday. Um, And you know what occurs to me, something you said, Heather, um, a bit ago, oh, or James, you know, just how, like, we, there are those of us, like, you, we're becoming aware of others that are teaching from the same thread, and I think it's, it is, it's like, um, it's being forced on us in a way because of the modern world. I think I think that those because there are so many teachers that come to me and and are either already they have already been able to articulate the questions of like what am I doing what is the point what is my role what is my relationship to to what I do and to the person in front of me I know there's more I'm compelled to offer more to um, you know, like I'm less interested in in the thing just as a, um, a you know a replicable movement sequence, and some of them are coming without those articulated questions. But like the desire, you you hear it in their language, you see it in their bodies that they they know that there's something more. They they know that there there is like um, there's a desire for self-advocacy and also yeah. to support yeah. advocacy in the student. And mm-hmm. talking to Frank yesterday just made me really realize that I it feels like we're being compelled to emerge in this way. That it's, yeah. It, yeah. it's not coincidence, right? It, it's not accident mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you know, the three of us and so many more people in 
in the movement, different movement professions are being like somehow, right, we're being led out to, to have these conversations and to ask these questions so that whether we use dance or whether we use, you know, visual arts or whether we use written art or whether we use, you know, movement in any form, Pilates or yoga or, you know, whatever, singing, whatever it might be, that that we know that it's only a small piece of of like the bigger work. I, I just feel like it's not it's not an accident. It there really is something um that's compelling us in this direction because the world needs this, right? We need to know and learn again how to connect with ourselves. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's ultimately what it is. It feels as though and I think that's why I find myself in front of so many different types of groups is that we've lost that ability or we are in the process of losing that ability to connect. And I think it's, I do think of, you know, the three of us and, and certainly others within the constellation of people who are doing this work of giving permission to people, returning permission to people to experience themselves and experience the lives that they're having mm-hmm. and that, you know, communication and community are, are deeply, deeply important. And, you know, I'm seeing this, you know, I mentioned that I'm reading Brene Brown books. Of course, I'm obsessed with her. I think of my movement experience as her work in the studio. So it felt like she's another kindred spirit, um, mm-hmm. part of the constellation. But I think of, there's a wide variety of people in multiple fields and disciplines that I think are doing this. And I think that's why we're attracted to the neuroscientists who are talking about where does, where does, yeah. where does feeling live in the body. And then we know that when we move the body, then it moves the feelings. And so what does that mean? And then what does that mean neurologically? And, um, you know, and so there's just so many intersecting pieces that it feels as though it's emerging out of a point of crisis in where we are as a society. Um, and I think that it feels, at least in my life, it has felt like I can't ignore it anymore. The work is asking to, to be made. And mm-hmm. what is really difficult is that I, it's taken me multiple steps and multiple venues to find where people might look for it, where they might find me where I might find them, how do we get start to work together, how would, you know, who will pay for this, <laughs> um, mm. who will understand the value of it. And even three or four years ago when I, was, when I launched this outside of schools, I was doing it in an arts setting and they weren't looking for it there. And I've been using this working title of creative self-care because, you know, when I was first floating around the idea of movement-based mindfulness, people thought that was too woo-woo and they didn't, they wouldn't know what to expect. <laughs> and I laugh because creative self-care is so much more descriptive, right? Um, but, <laughs> you know, it, it's really ambiguous, but it was the closest thing I could get to that would, you know, at least describe the components and, you know, invited bigger conversation. And then as I've been test driving this, well, what if it's movement-based mindfulness and, you know, trademarking that, um, 
now there's this wave of recognition where new clients will go, oh, I think I know what to expect, and then they'll tell me what they anticipate in a session, and I can guide their expectations. And then, you know, clients that have been with me for a while say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still a lot of ambiguity to that because it could it can look a million different ways. And, in fact, when you move through my classes, they do. But, yeah, I just I feel as though it's we have to come at these issues from as many potential directions because just like we have a wide variety of learners in our spaces, some are visual some are bodily kinesthetic, um, mm-hmm. you know, some are spatial. We've got to teach in as many ways so that they get the information and that under, they can understand it and they can live with it and they can live on it and through it. I feel as though it's the same thing where, you know, Chandler is talking about movement from his lens mm-hmm. and that's going to be right for some people and the way James describes it is going to be right for other people and the way Frank describes it is going to be for other people and Chantal and myself and Trent and you know all of these other kinds of people mm-hmm. it's it's connected but there's strength in that nuance because you know it doesn't have to be competitive it can be yeah. complementary and constructing yeah. and converging it's, yeah yeah. So when you're when you're talking about something as uh, gritty as working with a person or even more so a group of people, what what feels important to you, Heather? Like, like uh, I think we all understand that there's that there's a movement component, but like, what what are you? Um, what feels important to you when working with people? Removing judgment. Mm. So I start every class with this is a judgment-free zone. And what that means is that while you're here, you're not allowed to compare yourself to anyone else in the room. You're not allowed to compare yourself to yourself at any other point in time. And you're free to take the zone with you when you leave. Mm. Um, I say it every time because even if they've been with me for a couple of years, Today might be the day where they are judging and self-criticizing or they're aware of, you know, somebody else's body or somebody else's movement or somebody else's energy and they're pulling away from themselves. And it works universally. Mm-hmm. So one of the other jobs that I do is <laughs> I work as a teaching artist um, as a with the Wharton Center, which is the big theater for Michigan State University. And we are a site for the Kennedy Center Partners in Education. And so I go into classrooms and I work with classroom teachers to create arts integration experiences. And it works for fifth grade boys. And it works for 75-year-old women and everyone (laughs) in between. Um, So that is important. So removing judgment so that they have permission to have a personal experience. Hmm. that's important to me. Um, mm-hmm. It's important to me that they experience what is right with themselves, with their bodies, with their movement in the time that we have together, even if it's fleeting. Um, and hopefully that that, you know, it, it sustains over time and that gets longer. Um, but I think often in movement industries and 
in larger scales of life. We're hyper-cued and we are hypersensitive to what we are allowed and not allowed to do. So I find there's a lot of people that will come and they're worried about making mistakes and they're Mm -hmm. worried about doing their physical Mm -hmm. therapy wrong and they're Mm -hmm. worried about just being wrong. Yeah. Um, And so we spend conscious time. You know, I usually, especially for the, the most critical clients, find a moment to say, that was incredible. You don't have to accomplish anything else for the day because you've done it. That was amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so so finding something that has been successful and has been right for them. And then also I would say breaking the image of supposed to or should um, so that, you know, not movement doesn't look the same on everybody because mm-hmm. not everybody's body is the same. So why would we expect it to be? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's personal and it's functional and it can be technical. And then eventually my goal is that it becomes expressive. Mm-hmm. So we move through this sequence of building function, building articulation, they've got to find meaning in what they're doing and then it becomes expressive. Um, because they have the right to dance, even if they their definition of dance and mine are starkly different. Um, they probably have a much narrower picture of what that looks like. And of course, because I love the postmoderns, you know, standing still is dance for me. Mm-hmm. Walking is dance for me. And it's mm-hmm. on the street and it's in the elevator and it's wherever it is. All of it is performative. Life is performative. Mm-hmm. Um, so those things are important to me. I'm having another one of those moments like when I took your class. Like, are we the same person? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we very uh, so well could converse, be. Yeah, a, a conversation I've been having with the students in particular recently, because it's, it's a new thing is, um, in my brain, is the idea of, of diversity across across the board. And I think we're used to the term diversity when it comes to preference or skin color or hair color or, you know, whatever, whatever you think of when you think diversity, but to begin to consider diversity as a spectrum and everything on that is the same amount of normal. And Mm -hmm. so my, if we want to talk Pilates language, my swan looks like this, your swan looks like that. They're Mm -hmm. existing on this diverse spectrum of like, it's normal. That belongs to me. And how I process information is diversely different than how you process information. And it doesn't make it um, okay. And it doesn't make yours better or mine worse. It's like, no, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Right. And it is what it is. It, it is what it is. And to begin to appreciate and meet people on that level and, and uh, encourage people to appreciate where they are on that spectrum, mm-hmm. no matter no matter what facet you're looking at is is exactly what you just articulated in like a step-by-step process. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you for that. That was yeah. um, well put. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm really struck too, Heather. I have a question I've been wanting to ask, but I'll hold it for the moment. The, um, the idea of the final outcome as being expressive and, 
you know, we've been talking about how many of us ha are kind of working from the same intent, but our language is different, and and that's very exciting because it does it does attract and serve people um, of, of such a you know in such a wide spectrum. Um, but this idea of expressiveness, I think, it's just it's a great it's a great word and a way to think about you know what James is talking about, what I talk about to my students. Like, what's what's the value in the shape that you are making? You know, like how does how does the shape inform the value? Not not is there value in the shape I'm making? Does that make sense? So so this idea of diversity, you know, that James is talking about, it's like today the movement looks like this, but it feels this way. What's the expression? Of of this shape because it, it's the expression, it's the quality, it's the experience that gives form to the shape rather than the other way around. And to get people to open up to just being willing to see that the shape is not the end goal, but the shape is the expression of the value, and it, and and it's also a loop, right? Of of informing, expressing, and informing, you know inciting and mining what else is there just the word really struck me because it's uh it's not a word i would think to use like like that although i do often talk about you know the expression of the of the movement that we're working with but i just think it's 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 a shift right it's a very integral shift in terms of um uh the facade um, versus the the genuine like what's the genuine experience like I fucking hate what's happening right now I hate it it doesn't feel good <laughs> right it's like okay yeah. so you know it's or 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 it's some version of that or it's so glorious and amazing but that there's room and acceptance for all of those things uh, and and then I don't know and isn't that the point of life you know like yeah isn't the point <laughs> to have a broad range of experiences and to have things that make you cringe and mm. have things that are so decadent that you would like to spend a lot of time in. And it could it's true of food and it's true of music and it's true of how you, I mean, that, again, it's like a life, it's, you know, a quality of life versus a life of quality. And we've removed, I think, or conditioned people to leave that sense of awareness and expression in their bodies that it does tell a story. And, you know, when you watch people, there is nuance to where they are, but there's also a very... Uh, what's the word that I uh, like mm, numbing or mm, uh, like stripping away r removing of nuance and expression so that there's a lot of redundancy from body to body to body in some ways and then of course mm -hmm. there's great richness of diversity in other ways um, because I think we've left the expression as a result of what's happened to us instead of a result of choice. And we have forgotten that our bodies are tools of communication 
and that we should be able to move in big space and throw our arms up and feel a drop sense of gravity when we are jubilant and that we can also, you know, dispel or disperse um, negative energy by powerful thrusts of movement and it can transform how our mood is. Uh, And that we forget that it's normal and it's preferred to be fluctuating between those points. Um, that's the ultimate goal. And, you know, and also when, when trauma is present in the body, that movement is something that has to be reestablished. But I yeah. think we've normalized the lack of that and we expect yeah. life to live in one domain. We want to be happy. We, yeah. you know, we want to live there. We want movement to, to be this. And I think in some extent, it happens in dance. I think it happens also in Pilates and other movement modalities. It's the, the pitfall of when we are teaching the sequence of events and we're teaching the shapes and not the expression of the shapes mm-hmm. um, and not the opportunity to infuse ourselves into those shapes. And then how do we get to play with it and explore with that? Um you know, we uh, homogenize our experiences in the body. I think you're drawing such an interesting parallel, too, because this, you, you started by saying, like, isn't that what life, isn't that the point of life? And I think that a lot of people would disagree with you, right? Like, a lot of people don't actually, like, and you just said this, right? It's, it, it, we are we are always, always moving towards our preference of feeling good. And, and so, and I think that's why so many of us are so deeply unhappy is because we are trying to find a stasis of like, Mm -hmm. this is, I have arrived. I am happy. I I need to maintain this state because this is what life. And we've been told that really from so many self-help gurus, like, positive thinking like everything is fine everything can be okay all the time you can live in a state of flow it's like mm-hmm. no no in fact that is not reality <laughs> but, yeah. but i think this translated right it's in, not just into yeah. our bodies but through our bodies that this is what we do like i need to fix my shoulder i need to fix my i need to get out of pain. I mean, of course, we all prefer not to be in pain, but the experience of life is often painful. And yeah. Yeah. It, it, it just, I, you, it's um, the experience of constricting and constricting and constricting so that I think for me as a teacher, it becomes like I, I feel like I'm constantly having to renegotiate with teachers um, in the way that they're teaching and students in the way that they're receiving um, teaching and moving in their body, that the, it, it's not it's not a narrow lens. It's massive and it's three-dimensional and it's, it is fluctuating. Yeah. And can we be in our bodies and, and um, be healthy in our bodies even if we are experiencing pain, you know, or... Yeah. It is this fluctuation, this ability to oscillate, but I think just the modern lifestyle, I mean, we really are 
we're just constricting and constricting and constricting more. So it it's just such a fascinating parallel. And of course, right, it seems so obvious because there's really, there's no separation between the, the inner and outer experience and one is a product of the other. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting how it shows up in, in people's mm-hmm. beliefs about themselves. And from my perspective, teachers' beliefs about people's bodies that they are and incapable and that that if they get the person out of, like, if somebody is in pain, their goal is to get them out of pain and then their job is done. And I yeah. just feel like, what what are you doing, actually? Like, is that really, is that really the goal? <laughs> yeah, I think it, that, yes, all of that. It brings two thoughts. One, I think our use of language is really important and often uh, too quickly breezed through. So in every field, you have jargon, Mm -hmm. and people will use value statements as their jargon, right? So we've identified in this conversation that we believe in diversity. Mm -hmm. But diversity to you or what your image of that term is and what somebody else believes, um, until we have some commonality and common understanding about what our definitions of those buzzwords are, we're really limited in how we can move forward with critical conversation that really makes an impact. And I think that's true of how we teach teachers, and I think it's true of how our teachers interact with students and clients and ultimately how students and clients interact with themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also leads to assessment. So assessment to me is where storytelling is. And when I, you know, I stumbled into this part of my career because uh, I was teaching in K-12 schools and the legislature changed, legislation changed in our state um, in terms of how educators demonstrate their effectiveness and uh, student growth scores on state tests is supposed to be determined into educators' evaluation no matter what content area you teach, even if that content is not on that state test. So as a dance educator, dance is not on the state test, but reading and math scores are supposed to tell me how good of a teacher I am. <laughs> so we started to, you know, so I work with this team of superheroes in that world that are um, incredible, and I'm humbled to be part of them. But what I've learned with them, and, and the project is Michigan Arts Education Instruction and Assessment Project, which is why we call it Maya, um, it has taught me the value of assessment. So when I first started with this, I thought, um, that's not interesting, that's scary, it's going to be used against me, and (laughs) what does that mean? But it was a call for arts educators to get involved in this project, and we wrote a blueprint for what high-quality arts education should look like in our state. There's a program review tool, which is really about infrastructure. There's assessment items that are performance tasks, so it's not kids taking paper and pencil tests, it's them dancing, and then me being able to use a rubric to determine how they're developing and talk to my administrator about how they're developing and and they can understand that data because it's 
it results in data that is more common to or similar to what they're used to seeing in other content areas. And when I take all of that work and I transpose it into what I do in a Pilates context, and this is what I start to guide teachers through, and I also use creative process to help them make some connections, I think sometimes we get in the trap of thinking we're doing what we're doing, having some sense of success that might be because students are coming back or they're mm -hmm. saying the right things, hey, my pain went away, you're so great. Um, <laughs> I brought my friend. So, you know, they're all success. But <laughs> until we get really clear about what is my actual goal right, mm -hmm. and how am I going to assess if I'm achieving that, and what are the stories that are actually existing in my practice and the stories that my clients are actually moving through? And am I attracting the kinds of teachers to my studio that I want? Am I attracting the types of clients that I want? Mm -hmm. um, I think language is a really big component for all of those pieces as well as how are we determining the evidence and what does the data tell us? And it's been exhilarating. You know, I was, a, I was, a, I was <laughs> by all accounts, very successful at my job. Families were happy. Students were happy. I was happy. I thought I knew what I was doing. I had a graduate degree. I have professional standards. I know what to look for in good dance. I know what to look for in good moving bodies. But when I really started to understand assessment in the way that assessment people understand it, mm -hmm. um, it was a game changer. Mm. And so I feel strongly about that. It's a, it's not very sexy, but boy, is it <laughs> important, you know, and it's intimidating. And ultimately, I think most of this also just keeps us chasing our vulnerabilities and our fears. And where can we hide, you know? Mm. And I think when you look at the data, it doesn't, if you're curious about what the data is actually telling you, Boy, that can lead to some super exciting work. Mm. And is this is this the work that you're doing in the spiral with with other teachers, or yes. how can people connect with you on that? Yes. So um, I'll have a session in May um, here in Michigan, uh, May 24th and 25th, and essentially within that, we will be, you know, we're looking at. Where are your values? So what's your blueprint? Mm -hmm. um, what is it that you want to be teaching? Do you have the supports in place to make that happen? Uh, how, what is the climate and the culture of your studio? And how are you assessing the success of that or, or you know, where you are in, compared to your goal setting? Um, I also will talk about, uh, you know, how do you set your studio up as a place that is inclusive and prepared to work with people with trauma simply because you don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. Some of them may reveal to you stories about their lives, you know, to which, you know, scope of practice is, you know, <laughs> a flag there and we, you know, but working with bodies and working with people is intimate and they reveal things and, you know, it's their yeah. life story. They're just telling you their story. Yeah. They're not necessarily asking you to heal them in that capacity. You're not a professional exactly. in that domain. But um, 
the reality is you don't know who has trauma and who doesn't. And so what are the things that you can look for to help you understand how to move safely through a session um, and, and help provide support for them in a way that does get them the professional help that they need, should that be on that end of that spectrum. Um, but I think that's something that's often overlooked in teacher training. Yeah. So essentially I'm looking at, you know, what, how do you teach about teaching and where are the gaps that you're missing? Where are the goals that you have? And then I also take them through creative process in a way that they do have the opportunity to connect with themselves, remind themselves why they're doing this in the first place, and gathering some insight about where they would like to go next. Um, and then how do you collect the data that helps you understand the stories that are in place? Hmm. Sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a lifelong career to get to this point. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's just I've had the the privilege of, working with really brilliant people in really different types of contexts. And I think it's my responsibility to share that with others. Mm. So that's the spiral. Um, yeah. Well, well, that, <laughs> yes. Like where, where do, where do we send our money? Like that's yeah. uh, such needed work to, um, you know, it's, it's, it's work that, again, a lot of us are doing. It's just through your very specific lens. And the idea, again, it's it's not sexy to do uh, some sort of collection of data. But if you don't have that, you don't know where you don't know where you're at, and you don't know where you're going. Right. And um, and you don't know how to talk to people about their growth. You know, and you exactly. can't hand them back responsibility over their experiences. That's right. Yeah. 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 And I think people are afraid to look at assessment on all kinds of different levels and from different perspectives because they are afraid of what it will tell them, right? And I think yeah. Yeah. It, what you said earlier is that we tend to kind of anchor ourselves into those superficial indicators of success, like you brought your friend, you're out of pain, you know, you love me so much, you know, what, what all the all the things, but really – one, are we even clear about what we are trying to achieve? I find is that yeah. teachers yeah. really are not. That I means be beyond just being afraid to assess. They're afraid. They're maybe afraid is not quite the right word, but that they don't know that what they should consider very specifically are the outcomes that they're trying to achieve with every student. Not like I'm trying to get somebody to have better range of motion in their left knee after knee mm -hmm. surgery. But what are the what are the greater, broader uh, outcomes that you're committed yeah. to day in and day out that actually motivate you to keep developing your work and up even when it's difficult, those outcomes. And, yeah. and, yeah. and that's when we don't even know that that's something we should consider, it, it becomes impossible to to even track, assess, yeah. determine. Uh, you know, just then we're just kind of lost. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and I, think I think even. Oh, yeah. go ahead, Heather. Go ahead, Heather. I was just going to say I think the we also expect assessment to mean that we are trapped 
that we're going to be caught with what we don't know and what we don't do well. Yes. And that's not actually the point of view that we use. It's actually where are the successes and where can we capitalize on those to make more? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. It's really, you know, inverting that perception about I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy enough, I'm not, I don't know enough. No, our point isn't about what you know and what you don't know. Our point is what does your client know and how do we know they know it? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we help you have more of them that know that? Um, so it's really flipping that negative fear-based normal human response. You know, in, in the K-12 work that we do, we really talk about teachers developing their sense of agency so that they are actually telling the story of what's happening really well. And isn't that what we want to be sharing with our greater audiences so that they are attracted to our work as well? It's not about mm-hmm. trapping you for what you're not doing. It's it's about, you know, celebrating you for what you are. And that's an, well, inter- that's an interesting theme because we tend to, we are taught to work on our weaknesses rather than our strengths, right? So yeah. it's a very interesting perspective. Um, sorry, James, you were about to jump in there. Yeah. Uh, I, for me, too, for me too, also, um, when you're considering movement and you're considering uh, analysis of that, it often jumps into a, a quantitative analysis and, mm-hmm. and, you know, into that range of motion conversation or repetitions mm-hmm. or weight limits. Um, when I think so much of of movement is the quality of that yeah. and the experience mm-hmm. of that and to actually have a way to begin to assess is that the thing that's changing is that right. can we make a conversation around that because yeah. those are the things that are those are the transferable skills from inside mm-hmm. of the studio to outside of the studio it's not how much weight can you push and, and how many of this is or that's I mean there's been plenty of case studies now in the physical therapy world where you know, you can teach someone to do this knee movement over on this machine, but, you know, when they go to walk, it it's, has not transferred to that. Right, right. So it's the quality of how, I'm, how, I'm, how is my body moving qualitatively? What is my experience qualitatively? What have I learned um, at an explicit and implicit level? And what are the changes being made there in that way um, that are the real meat and bones of, of, of the work? And yeah, to have and a way can it also be fun? About that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and I think back to your just move. You know, I use, you know, even when I'm we're doing pretty straight Pilates based work, I I love the qualitative and quantitative um, assessments because you get a fuller picture. But also, mm-hmm. when you're introducing people <laughs> into a different kind of movement experience than they might expect. You learn a whole lot, but you also give them permission to have fun. And so part of the spiral yeah. is also what are some other ways that you can get people moving that are enjoyable but also really revealing um, and still helps with their brain and still does all of these things that we, you know, we would love for them to benefit from. But, you know, m- moving in joy is not just for children. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The idea of satiation and movement. I mean, like we could literally have this podcast go on for the next week. I know. Um, <laughs> it was so, so good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
So Heather, what uh, what are you curious about right now, either in your work or what's what's sort of intriguing you right now? I'm really interested in the neuro movement. So I had moved through Trent's neuro movement course, Trent McIntyre, mm-hmm. um, and I've been adding that work into my movement sessions. And I'm right now playing with how that work and the work that's been existing in my curriculum is shifting mood and emotion and really um, providing some opportunities for community. So Mm -hmm. as an example, sometimes people will, if they're in an unfamiliar setting and they're asked to do something out of their comfort zone, like move, um, they can be pretty stiff about it. Uh, I also have a group of dancers who I work with professionally um, and they perform my work that we create together. But they are a relatively um, introverted group. And, Mm -hmm. you know, how do I get them to relate to each other in a dynamic way? They're comfortable with each other, but that doesn't always lead to a dynamic range. And so I've been Mm -hmm. playing with some of the neural movement tools to facilitate that and spark a wider range of movement dynamics. So I'm in that small rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've also been thinking a lot about, and this isn't new, this is just where I live, Um, (laughs) thinking a lot about movement literacy and other kinds of literacies. Yeah. And how that elicits greater success in a variety of life ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Heather. <sighs> I love you, Heather. I love I do. you both. Oh, <laughs> goodness. Yeah, what, what an absolute joy it has been to talk with you and to just, to just chat and explore. And it, it's really, it's really just a, so exciting to learn more about your work and and what you're doing and to know that you know all the people that are listening are going to be exposed to that uh, it's really exciting and thank you so much for spending time with us tonight it's been so I'm, awesome. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to talk about this work and to have time to be able to just indulge in conversation mm-hmm. with like minds and uh, community from afar, a little constellation of thinkers and movers. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah. you so much. And thanks for the work well, that you're doing. Oh, thank you. Uh, I have a feeling this won't be the last time we have a conversation with you as we were, even even there in the last few moments, I was like, this is, the, this is another podcast I want to do with Heather. Like, yeah. there's just so much conversation that, um, there's so many things I'd like to just talk out with you. So yeah, thank you for thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you. <laughs>